Okay, so yesterday was uh, Independence Day, and uh, it's kind of the most patriotic day for Americans, um, and we celebrate in all kinds of ways, but it's important to me. I, I realize I'm becoming a bit of a dinosaur, but I really love this country, and I'm just really, really grateful for the freedoms that we have and the price that have been paid for those freedoms and all that kind of stuff, and um, it's interesting to me, it's apropos, that on Independence Day weekend, I have a chance to address an issue that is affecting all of us as Americans. It's an American cultural issue that is really standing right in front of us that has to be faced and has to be dealt with. Um, and I had a whole different plan for what I was going to preach on this week. Um, and in fact, last week I did a, a message introducing the topic of prayer and the life of faith. And, I, and, I, and by the way, if you didn't hear last week's message, you weren't here, um, or you slept through it or whatever, um, I encourage you to go online and listen to last week's message, because we are going to talk about prayer and the life of faith, and it was kind of a foundational message for that that you need to hear. Now, that being said, um, this is the second time that I can remember where something has happened in the news or in popular culture that has been so significant to us that it has caused me to stop what I was going to do with my preaching, completely preach on something else, cover a topic that needs to be covered because it's in all of our minds and we're all dealing with it right now. The last time I remember doing this was um, the week after September 11, 2001, and we had the terrorist bombing and we had to think as people, how, you know, how do we deal with this? And this week, I decided to do the same thing, and, and this is going to be very different if you're visiting with us for the first time. The sermon's going to be extremely different than what you would normally hear on a Sunday morning. In fact, I wouldn't even call it a sermon. I'm not really preaching this morning. Um, I'm just trying to reason from the scriptures with us so that we can, we can get to a place where we have a biblical foundation for how we're supposed to see, understand, and deal with what's going on in our culture. Now, in case you have been living on Mars for the last couple of weeks and you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about June, uh, excuse me, yeah, June 26, 2015, uh, which is what, 10 days ago or something like that. Uh, the United States Supreme Court ruled that all 50 states must extend marriage rights to include same-sex couples who wish to be married. Um, it affects all of us. It's a Supreme Court decision. There is no higher court that we can... Uh, uh, that it can be appealed to. There are legal ways for Congress to overturn this, but it's a big, huge, huge deal, and it's not likely to happen. Um, and I'm not telling any of you anything that you don't already know. If you're above the age of 10, you have an opinion on this. You have seen it on the news. If you are in any way connected to social media with Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any of those kinds of things, you have been bombarded over the last 10 days or so with information regarding this, and you have even felt some pressure because there are people who you are in relationship with who see the issue differently than you see it, and it creates this sort of tension even in online relationships. Um, you, if you've seen the news at all, the news has been covering it. If you've driven down the street, you have seen rainbow flags flying all over the place. And you've probably even seen what is, depending on your side of the argument, the famous or infamous picture of the White House lit up like a rainbow. Uh, and, and it's caused a lot of 
confusion. And it has caused a lot of people to try to figure out, what do I really understand about this subject? Where do I really stand on this subject? What kind of arguments are legitimate and what kinds are not? Everybody's talking about it. And I have been fielding emails and um, face-to-face questions all week long from people who are saying, hey, as Christians, how are we supposed to look at this? And so what I want to do, there's a lot of things that I could do here. Um, If we had time or or if this was the appropriate place, there, there are legal arguments related to this. There's a lot to be said and debated and questioned from a legal standpoint about about the role of the Supreme Court, about um, the Constitution and what the Founding Fathers had in mind in in their original writing of the Constitution, about whether that's even a legitimate question anymore. There's a lot of legal questions to be asked about this, and the pundits are asking those questions. There are a lot of historical discussions taking place about the, the history of our nation and, and the Judeo-Christian ethic and what's happened to the Judeo-Christian ethic in our culture, how what has happened to other cultures who have gone a similar path that we seem to be on. There's historical arguments that are taking place. There are moral debates on the subject, and most of the moral debates that are taking place are taking place loudly and angrily. There's people throwing grenades at one another from both sides of this topic. Um, There are literally tens of millions of Americans and people throughout the world, frankly, who are rejoicing because of this decision. And there are literally tens of millions of people who are saddened and frustrated because of this Supreme Court decision. And so we could just sort of shrug our shoulders and act like this doesn't affect us and it doesn't matter and we don't have to address it, but I think that would be um, irresponsible. So as your pastor... I feel like I have a responsibility to do two things here. There's a lot of other discussions to be had, but there are two things I'm going to try to do this week and next week. I'm going to try to first and foremost lay a biblical foundation to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality and gay marriage? What does the Bible teach about it? Does the Bible address it? The, the, the typical passages that you hear referenced, are they taken out of context? How do we make sure we get them in context? How do we understand what God's Word says about this? And then how do we um, uh, form our opinions based on that? Uh, I'm, I'm troubled as I talk to people. Um, and, and I don't mean this in an insulting way at all. I just sincerely, it, it, it troubles me. That as I talk to people who have been Christians for some time, um, that there's, a, there's more confusion than there is confidence about what the Bible teaches on this subject. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There are a lot of people who are saying, well, you know, I know the Bible says that, you know, homosexual activity is sinful, but it also says that it's a sin to eat pork. And we do that without any problems. So, I mean, are we really going to take all these Old Testament ideas and move them into our culture today? And, and, and we sort of shrug our shoulders and go, I don't really know how to answer this question. I'm not going to be able to do a deep study of every passage that needs to be looked at on the subject, but I want to lay out for you today some foundational passages that if we can understand them correctly, we can have a much better idea of what we should believe about this subject and where we go from there. So I want to do that. The second thing I want to do is uh, I want to then ask the question, okay, so what? 
the Bible teaches what it teaches, what does that mean for us? How are we supposed to live in a culture where this is our reality and we are supposed to stand on biblical truth? How are we supposed to... Um, how are we supposed to embrace our gay friends? What are we supposed to do in a community of people that, is complete, that is, seems to be trying to be as divisive as possible? Is it, do we just have to get into our camp and start throwing grenades at the other camp? Or is there some way for us to actually be light in a dark world where we're actually engaging people who need the love of Jesus and doing it in a way that doesn't compromise the truth of God's Word. Because frankly, too much of what is the body of Christ in the United States has decided that you either are going to have to give up on the truth and just set it aside and say, oh, well, we're not worried about what the Bible teaches on this subject, or you're going to have to give up on loving people because the Bible has such a strong message on this that you can't really love people who disagree with it. And there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of people who are, who are really coming down in a place that says, we can stand on the truth of God's word and do it in the same way that Jesus did so that the love that we are sharing with people is in concert with his word, but also sees the need of people, does not condemn people, and lets God's word speak into their lives. And, and so it's not easy. It's not easy. It's complicated. And I'm not going to be able to answer every question, clear up all the confusion, but I am going to try to, find, to help you to get a biblical foundation and to ask the question and answer it. How do we live in accordance with this? Um, for today, I'll be laying the biblical foundation. If you hear today's message and you leave afterwards and you never hear the next part of the message, you will get an imbalanced picture. So I just want to make you aware of that. If for some reason you're not going to be here next week, I strongly encourage you to go to our website and listen to the sermon next week um, because they're, they're going to come together. And if we're going to get the, both of these questions answered, we're going to need to hear both these messages. For today, we're going to really address as frankly as possible this issue of what does the Bible say about this? Um, surprisingly, the Bible doesn't say very much about it. For, for an issue that is so um, polarizing, for an issue that is so important in society, it's astonishing how little the Bible says about it. There are very few passages in the Bible that address the issue of homosexual behavior, and there are even fewer that shed light on the question of homosexual marriage. The Bible didn't say a lot about it. But what the Bible does say it's crystal clear about. And our job is to understand what the Bible does say and then build our, our own um, philosophy and theology and lifestyle based on the biblical foundation. So we're going to be looking at some key passages. You're going to need a Bible this morning. Hopefully you have one or you can look on with somebody. But um, we're going to be looking at Old Testament and New Testament passages passages. We're going to try to get as clear a picture of this as we possibly can, and we're going to begin at the beginning, which is Leviticus chapter 18. So in your Old Testament, um, the third book is the book of Leviticus, and I want you to go to Leviticus chapter 18. Now, if you don't know, like how many of you were reading from the book of Leviticus this week in your own <laughs> personal Bible study? One, two, okay. Um, this is not the most common quiet time book. 
This is not the place you sit down and get little inspirational nuggets for your day and that sort of thing. The book of Leviticus is a book of law. And in some ways, it's like sitting down and reading legal briefs. It's just boring. Um, But if you understand the law that is being given, and you understand the context in which it is given, it is actually incredibly helpful to our lives today. So in the book of Leviticus, what you have is God giving the law through Moses to the nation of Israel. And for us to understand it, we have to begin by understanding this. There are essentially three types of Old Testament law. One is what is called civil law. The nation of Israel was an actual nation, just like we are the United States of America. And just like the United States of America has certain laws where certain things are legal, certain things are illegal, certain things are required, certain things are forbidden, so too it was in the nation of Israel. They had a civil law code that said things like, if someone commits this crime, this will be the punishment. Civil law for the nation of Israel. The second is ceremonial law. The ceremonial law has to do with the religious life of the nation of Israel. They were, they were what is called a theocracy. God was their king. And it was all about the worship of, king, of the king. And so they had certain laws that had to do with ceremonies, the way they should worship, even down to the details of what food they could eat and not eat, how they would wash their hands, what the priests would do, how you would get forgiveness. All of that is laid out in the ceremonial law. And then the third kind of law is called the moral law. And that would include the Ten Commandments, and it would include other kinds of laws that say, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. And so in Jesus, you have the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. All of it was meant to point to Jesus. All of it was meant to be about how God has a relationship with Israel, wants to have a relationship with all of us. And Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law, which is why in the, in the New Testament, for instance, the dietary law is done away with. We can now eat anything we want to eat. And it's acceptable under religious law. But the, and then the, the civil law relates to the nation of Israel, which the modern nation of Israel has its own set of laws. And we are Americans and not Israelites, and we're not under the civil law of Israel. The moral law lasts forever. It is affirmed by Jesus. It is affirmed by the apostles. It is affirmed in the New Testament throughout. And the moral law doesn't go away. Here we are in Leviticus chapter 18, and we're going to get a little glimpse of moral law. Leviticus 18, beginning in verse 22. Oh, I should say before we read this, um, this is a PG-13 sermon. It's closer to R than PG-13. And sometimes people are shocked by that. But if you've read your Bible, you will find there are R-rated sections of the Bible that we don't do in children's Sunday school. Um, We're going to deal with sexuality today. We're going to talk frankly about sex, about sexual sin, about marriage, and the role of sex in our lives. And uh, the book of Leviticus just jumps right in. Here we go. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. You shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Well, that's awkward. We just jump right in and we start talking about sexual sin and basically it's as clear as it could be. You may like it, you may not like it, you may agree with it, you may not agree with it. What you can't do is be confused by it. It's as clear as it could possibly be. 
It is saying that if you are a man, you do not have sexual relationships with another man. That is perversion, or the word that is used is abomination. Another word that is often used is debauchery. Another word that is often used is detestable. Um, It's the same idea. This is a terrible, detestable, unnatural thing that we must not do. It's clear. Again, agree with it, disagree with it, like it, don't like it, but it is clear. And what's interesting about this, and the reason that I read the second verse there, is because it's so important for us to understand that in verse 23, it says, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it, which is a perversion. Now, hopefully, all of us read that and go, ew, like, who would do that? Do people actually have to be warned not to do that? Yes. All throughout time, people have had to be warned not to do that. And the two are put together, bestiality and homosexuality, as though they are in the same category, are placed together there. And it goes on, verse 24, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, the word defile, For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments. You shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. And I like that he ends it with, I am the Lord your God, just in case you're thinking, yeah, but. Right? You know how as parents, sometimes you tell your kids what to do and they say, yeah, but, and the answer that they get is what? I'm the parents. You can have your opinion, but I'm the parents. And as your parents and your seven, I have more wisdom than you do. I have more knowledge than you do. I have more understanding than you do. And I have a love for you that determines that there will be some things I will not allow you to do because they're bad for you and because they're wrong, right? God says, I am the Lord, your God. So if you're upset about this, you can be upset all you want, God says, but I'm God. He is, he is claiming the moral authority to tell us what to do with our bodies. That is a very offensive thing in our culture today. What's right for you is right for you. What's, wrong, what's right for me is right for me. Let's just don't tell each other what to do and we'll all get along. Let's just coexist as the bumper stickers ask us to do, right? That's what our society has come to believe. God says, you can, you can argue all you want, I'm the Lord your God. And he uses these words like detestable and defilement and abomination. He's not joking around. He's even saying, I cast out a whole other nation from this land because they allowed such things. Don't allow such things. 
And it doesn't just refer to homosexual acts. It refers to all acts of sexual perversion, including bestiality. And the reason I bring that up is because part of what is happening in the cultural discussion right now is this question of, um, you know, is this a slippery slope? If we, if we say that homosexuality is okay, and then we go further and say that we will marry homosexuals, is there a slippery slope? Is there a place that this stops? Do we say that there is no morality regarding sex? Because most people wouldn't say that. Most people wouldn't say that bestiality is okay. Most people would not say that pedophilia is okay. Most people would not say that incest is okay, right? Even unbelievers, they know that this stuff is abominable. The interesting thing here is that God places all this sexual perversion together. So is there a slippery slope? Yes, there's a slippery slope. And philosophically, if we're going to be intellectually honest, we have to say that if we throw out the authority of the God of the Bible who created us to tell us how to live and we remove that authority, then there is no authority. And it really becomes what I want. I should be able to do what I want. So is there a slippery slope? Yes, there's a slippery slope. Is that a reason to be concerned? Yes, it is a reason to be concerned. However... We're not sliding all the way down that slippery slope yet. We're going to address the question at hand. And before I go further, let me just say this. God's not a prude. God gives us lots of sexual freedom. He gives us lots of wide parameters in which to enjoy our sexuality. Now, I know we don't talk about this in church and it makes everybody uncomfortable, but listen, sex is a gift from God. He gave it to us to bless us. It's a good thing. It's a holy thing. It is an honorable thing. And we live in a society that has so tarnished it and so trashed it that we have to look at it and go either it's dirty altogether or else everything is good. Neither one of those statements is true. The fact is that within the context of a biblical marriage, sexuality has all kinds of room for the enjoyment of our sexuality. But one of the things that has changed to affect that argument today is that we used to be able to say, listen, sex outside of marriage is sinful. The Bible is clear about that. And so gay people are not married, and therefore gay sex is sinful. Well, that's why it was so important for the people of that agenda to push this agenda so that they have the right to gay marriage, not civil unions, gay marriage. The idea being that it takes away the argument about what is right and what is wrong because it puts it in the context of marriage. We have to understand is there's not just one subject here, there are two. There's a subject of marriage and there's a subject of homosexuality. The Bible says that homosexuality is wrong wherever it takes place. So we can use the term marriage if we want to, but it's not what God calls marriage and we'll get to that in a few minutes. See, when God gives us direction like this, we can kick and scream and throw fits and say how unfair God is and all that kind of stuff. But we're just like the two-year-old who's screaming and throwing a fit because his father won't let him play with a hunting knife. We really have the opinion that we ought to be allowed by God to hurt ourselves and society in any way that we choose to. And he should just sit back and allow that to happen and still call himself a loving God. 
God's not being mean and He's not being controlling by forbidding behaviors that are unnatural, that are bad for us and bad for society. He's being loving. And by the way, the fact that these kinds of perversions are, for, are all forbidden in Scripture does make the slippery slope legitimate. There are other passages in Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament law that say the same thing in as many words. We could look them all up, but this one's pretty clear. But I should point out that while the Bible unequivocally teaches that all homosexual acts are sinful, it does not teach that homosexual temptation is sinful. There's a difference. There are people, for whatever reason, whatever reason, if you think you know the reason, you're wrong. Are we born this way? Is it a physiological thing that happens? Does it kick in at puberty? Is it, is it hormonal? Is it about brain chemistry? Is it about culture and being acculturated into something? I would say that all of those are possibilities and they may be from case to case. Why do people want to do this? could be all kinds of reasons. But we all face temptation, don't we? Or you, that doesn't include you? Do you face temptation? I face temptation every day. Some, I may be really weak in an area where you're strong. I may get tempted, say, say to, to um, misuse money, and you're just great with money. But you may be tempted to drink too much, and I don't even drink at all. They're still both sin, right? And we face a very cunning enemy who knows exactly where to aim his arrows, doesn't he? So we all have different levels of temptation. If you're filling out your tax forms next year and you're sitting down and you're looking at how much you made and you know that there's some money that you wouldn't have to report and you're thinking, you know what, the stinking government, they get so many taxes as it is. I'm paying way more taxes than I should be paying. I don't get the services I ought to be getting and all this money is going to bad programs and I don't even support our government, yada, 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 yada. I think I'm going to hide some of my income and not pay those taxes. And you're sitting there looking at your tax form and considering this. And then you go, you know what? The Word of God says I got to pay my taxes, that I can't lie, that I have to be honest. So I'm going to put it down. I'm going to write the check, however painful it is, and I'm going to pay my taxes. Have you just had a victory or a defeat? It's a victory. You face a temptation and resist it and instead do what is pleasing to God. That is a victorious moment in your life. We all face temptations. There are some people whose temptations have to do with same-sex attraction. We should be compassionate about that. But that doesn't change the fact that what God calls sin is sin. So there's a lot to talk about in the nature of same-sex attraction, but the truth is what God calls sin is sin. Now, another Old Testament passage that is discussed on this topic, we're not even going to look it up because you're already familiar with it. It's in Genesis chapter 19. It's a story of Lot going to Sodom, and he's living in Sodom, and the, and the, uh, the city is so corrupt that God decides he's going to destroy the entire city and save just Lot and his family, right? And he sends these two angels who are disguised as men, and the men come into the city, and the other men of the city see these men, and they um, have homosexual desires for these men, and they come to Lot's house, and they insist that he turn these men over to them so they can gang rape them in the streets. Again, R-rated stuff. And 
obviously God delivers Lot and his family. The angels get out of there safely and the people are wiped out. And the argument is, uh, why did God do this? Did he, did he not wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because of their homosexuality? And people will say, no, he did not. And the way you know that is from the book of Ezekiel. So turn to Ezekiel. It's toward the back of your Old Testament. After the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, you come to Ezekiel. And I want you to go to Ezekiel 16. Again, some of these verses I'm taking you to today are because of the arguments that I'm hearing out there from the other side. I want to make sure that we understand the Scripture in its context so that we're not misunderstanding. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. So the argument is, God did not destroy Sodom because of sexual sin. God destroyed Sodom for being inhospitable. God destroyed Sodom because they were wealthy and had great ease and abundance, and they didn't share it with those who were in need. That's exactly what it says. So that's true. That's why God destroyed Sodom. Verse 50. Verse 50. Thus, they were haughty and committed what? Yeah, abominations. It's the exact same word as we saw in Leviticus chapter 18, describing sexual perversion. That's what the word means. Because of their sexual perversion before me, God says, therefore I removed them when I saw it. Destroyed them when I saw it. So is sexual perversion the only reason that God destroyed Sodom? No. They were depraved to the core. They were bad in every area of life. They had so turned against God and gone their own way that there was probably no area that you would say, boy, these people could be held up as moral examples. And God said, there is such a lack of righteousness in this city, I will destroy the entire city. Those abominable acts are the sexual perversions. Clearly, Sodom was a perverse city in more ways than one. In fact, the word sodomy comes from the city of Sodom. Now, before we move on to the New Testament, we need some biblical understanding of what marriage is, and we're going to get that in Genesis chapter 2. So go to the very beginning. We go to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at it beginning in verse 18. This is the creation story, and, and Moses is, is stopping to unpack the details of the creation. In chapter 1, he just says, you know, on the first day he created this, and the second day he created this, third day, and all the way through the six days, and the seventh day he rested. And then in chapter 2, it gets into the details of how man came about. And, in, and he's already created Adam by verse 18, and then it says, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, or literally corresponding to him, connecting to him, one that is not him but matches him appropriately. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable or corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, if you paid any attention to this discussion, you've heard the sort of flippant argument that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. To base, to base our theology of marriage on that is ridiculous. We need to understand what the passage is actually teaching. First of all, it says that Eve was created suitable to Adam, corresponding to Adam, matching Adam. And at the risk of sounding crass or being too uh, descriptive, let me just say that uh, there's a way that Legos fit together. They are corresponding to one another. They are suitable to one another. And that's what this idea has to do with. And it's not just a physical idea as the passage fleshes out. It doesn't have to do just with the physical union. It has to do with two becoming one. And this is how we get down to the real basis of what marriage is about. Marriage is about two being made one by God. He creates two individuals, brings them together, and makes them one. Now, that is not a metaphor, it's literal. You say, well, no, it's not literal. I'm not literally one with my wife. Yes, you are. You can't see it, but spiritually, God says, I now see you as one. You are one, literally. The metaphor is sex, where you become one flesh and then separate. The idea is that sex is the metaphor for the actual reality of marriage, which is to become one. This is absolutely essential to our understanding of what marriage is, because we can, we can say what we want, we can change the laws, we can rewrite the books, we can do whatever we want to do, we can join with a number of denominations within the, under the umbrella of Christendom who have literally rewritten their, their core values in order to make room for homosexual marriage. And we can call it whatever we want. But the fact of the matter is that when the heterosexual says that uh, homosexuals cannot marry, we don't mean they should not marry. We mean it's impossible. Marriage, two being made one by God, depends upon one being male and the other being female. God has said that Otherwise, it is an abomination, and God is never going to bless an abomination. Does that make sense? We're talking about oneness here. So when we talk about the, the word marriage, that's why it's important. There are a lot of people as Christians who have said, I don't know why we make a big deal out of this. I mean, we've known people are gay for the longest time, and, and people live together, and they have rights, and they share medical insurance. and all, I mean, all of that stuff's already been taken care of. Why are we making such a big deal? Let them get married, because marriage means something. And we're literally saying it is impossible for two people of the same sex to be married by God. That's what we're arguing. You say, well, that's, you know, Genesis, the story of creation, and I don't know about all that. Well, let's see what the New Testament says. In fact, 
How many of you have heard someone say, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality? Right? We've been hearing that a lot lately. Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Because Jesus did not address the issue of homosexual behavior directly, but he did address the definition of marriage directly. And we're going to find this in Matthew chapter 19, and they come to him to ask him about divorce. And here's what happens. Matthew chapter 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. Did anyone ask him about that? Did anyone say, hey, is it okay for a male to marry a male or female? No, that was not the question. The question was about divorce. Jesus answers the question about divorce by defining marriage and telling us why marriage is so valuable and so important. And that leads into his answer about divorce. He says, he made them male and female. Where's he getting that? Genesis chapter 2. We just read it. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And then it goes on and tells us the story about corresponding to one another, okay? Verse 5, and said, Jesus, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6, so they are no longer what? Two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He goes, let me tell you what marriage is. Marriage is a male and a female brought together by God and made spiritually into one, something only God can do. And they become one. And then he says, what becomes one? Let no man separate. Now, boy, our society a long time ago decided we don't really care about divorce. But Jesus does. The Word of God does, because marriage is valuable. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing about divorce here. That's not my point, but my point is this. He is defining marriage the way that the Scripture defines it, and he's making it about oneness. They are no longer two, but one. You say, well, is there a place in the New Testament that, that really directly deals with it? Yes, there is. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't like what Jesus had to say, and be careful on your drive home, but Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks to the issue. Now, boy, you talk about controversial issues. If I, if my, if I ever get like shot after the service, it will be this week. Because um, we're going to get in, I'm not even going to address the issues that I'm going to read to you about here, about the issue of wives being submissive to their husbands and all that, which is so controversial in our society today. I don't have the time to address it, but but let me give it to you for context. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the what? Head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands 
ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Why is that true? Because when people get married, they become what? One. For no one ever hated his own flesh, verse 29, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are, member, um, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, this sound familiar? A man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. Paul is saying this is a great mystery. And I'm talking, I'm giving you the example here of marriage, and I'm comparing it to the church, Paul says. Just like in the church, we are all one in the body of Christ, but the body of Christ has a head who is Christ, and we're never separated from him. In the same way, when God brings two people together to be married, they become one, just like a head and a body are one. I think we go way too far when we read into this and go, this is all about, you know, when it says the husband is the head and the wife is the body, well, that means the husband is the thinker and the decision maker. Baloney. They didn't even think in those days that the brain was where decisions were made. They thought it was the heart. This is not about who is the boss in a marriage. There's a discussion to be had about that, but that's not what this is. What's this about? What is this metaphor? The metaphor is that when a husband and a wife become one, the husband is like the head and the wife is like the body. What's the point? The point is what happens when you separate a head from a body? Everything dies. It's a horrific defilement of what God has brought together. What God has brought together, let no man separate. It's about oneness. It's about oneness in Genesis, and it takes a male and a female. It's about oneness in Matthew when Jesus talks about it, and he says it takes a male and a female. It's about oneness when Paul talks about it here, and it takes a male and a female. But perhaps the most clear and significant passage on this subject in the New Testament is in the book of Romans. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Now, if you're not already sensing it, I'm, I'm rushing and hurrying and, and skipping through stuff and, and not having the time I would love to explain all the details of all this. But I had to get you to Romans 1 because if you didn't understand the, the significance of Romans 1 and going into this, you will not understand the biblical teaching on marriage. And I may keep you three to five minutes late today, so just bear with me, okay? But I want you to understand this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, when you do something that is not righteous, you're acting against the truth that God has revealed to you. Because that which is known about God, verse 19, is evident within them. God gave you a conscience. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. What's he saying? 
as people move away from God and begin to worship themselves and put themselves on the throne of their lives and say, it will be my wisdom that makes my decisions about right and wrong. It will be me who determines how I will live my life. I'm not going to submit my life to some God who's up on a cloud somewhere. I'm going to make my own decisions. And he says, as people do that and they move away from God, guess what happens? Their foolish heart is darkened. They think they're being wise, but they're actually becoming fools. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. We begin to worship ourselves and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, and this is important, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's not very specific. It could be talking about any natural or unnatural function. Well, read verse 27. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the penalty of their error. Is there anybody who's still not clear what we're talking about? It couldn't be more clear, could it? And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. The word depraved, the Greek word for depraved, means tested and found faulty for its intended purpose. What is the purpose of your mind? It's to know and glorify God. But as your foolish heart is darkened, as you move away from God and you become more and more foolish, your mind ceases to serve its intended purpose. And now you actually look at black and say, that's white. Because that's the way it makes sense in your depraved mind. What Romans is saying is that when we put ourselves in the throne of our own lives and we move away from God, we cease to be able to understand truth as it is. And that explains why, if you skip down to verse 32, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That explains very clearly where we're at as a culture today. There are literally millions upon millions of Americans who don't have a gay tendency in their lives, but who are flying rainbow flags because they strongly believe that it is good and right and just for people who are gay to marry one another. We not only pursue sin ourselves, but we give hearty approval to those who do it. That's where we are as a society today. Now, I need to wrap this up. I've done what I can to give you some, the, the, the most significant passages. You can write this down in your notes as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 also addresses this subject very directly, and I didn't get to it today. You can look it up at home. But I want to give you these biblical foundation because here's the thing. 
Next week, when we get together, we're going to talk about something totally different. We're going to assume that the biblical foundation is established, that we understand why gay marriage is not acceptable to God and, in fact, is not even, is not even possible. We're going to assume that we understand what God says about homosexual activities always being sinful in every context, no matter how much we love somebody. We're going to assume that that's all understood. And then what we're going to do next week is I'm going to hold up a giant mirror, and we're all going to look at ourselves in the mirror, and we're going to ask ourselves this question. How am I living in a culture that has turned its back on God in this way? Am I living as light in the darkness? Or am I living as one who stands in a fort and throws grenades at those who are outside. Because God has called us to something much better than that. God has called us to be light in the midst of the darkness. So we've described that this Supreme Court decision on a, on a, a morality basis is simply a wrong decision. It's morally wrong. It's as simple as that. That's according to God's Word. We live in a America that says it's right. How shall we live? We're going to have to be held accountable to God for how we live in light of what we know. And there's a world out there dying without Christ who desperately needs us to handle this the right way. So let me ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray for you.